basically share out their experience, mm -hmm. right? Like really validate where they're coming from, why they're using the plant, um, what it's helping them to do. So when I get new clients, I'm not just immediately going, oh, they must be abused. No, I'm like, okay, well, how are you using it? What does it seem to do for you? Um, what do you get out of it? How often and so forth? But really just asking questions. You know, versus making assumptions. Yeah. You know, like that's important. And for this, being on the other side of the couch or the chair or whatever, as a client, um, Welcome to Blue Dream Radio, the People's Cannabis Podcast, a weekly podcast giving communities of color a dose of the real deal in the cannabis industry. Learn with us, smoke with us, and join us as we bring truth to power. This is your co-host, L.E.G., alongside Freedom Love. How y'all doing today? And we're coming to you live and direct from our space, sponsored by our friends at Presto Doctor. What's up, Presto? What's up, Rob? Thank you for giving them some space. And today's episode, part of our Let's Talk About It series, um, features two friends from the New York Study Group, Jeremy Woolworth and Chanel Evans. Hello. Hello, good people. Awesome. And so the whole purpose of this Let's Talk About It series is to do that exactly. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about things that are happening in and around the cannabis industry, stuff that people, kind of the elephant in the room, uh, for, specific, for specifically people of color, uh, and that we need to start bringing to the forefront. This is stuff that mainstream media isn't talking about when we're talking about the cannabis industry and legalization. So we're going to take this time to talk to uh, folks from the New York Study Group to just further that discussion. How's it going, people? My name is Jeremy Woodward. I'm here representing the New York Cannabis Study Group. I'm here with uh, my partner. Chanel Evans, Study Group member and licensed clinical psychologist. Oh, wow. That's that's a big title. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. That's nice. Yeah. So what we do at the beginning of every podcast is that we go through a a can of quote, that's as we call it, of the day. Uh, we pick a quote that means something to us, a quote that um, is important to us. And the education quote that we chose today is very important because of the miseducation of our communities around the cannabis industry. And the quote goes like this. Without education, people will accept anything. Without education, what you'll have is neocolonialism instead of the colonialism like you have now. Without education, people don't know why they're doing what they're doing because, you know what I mean? <laughs> he agrees, he agrees. You might get people caught up in an emotionless movement. Might get them because they're poor and they want and they want something. And then, if they're not educated, they'll want more. And before you know it, We'll have a Negro imperialism, Fred Hampton. So, what do you feel about that quote, huh? Um, well, I feel he's 100% true. Um, if you're not educated on why you're doing things, or why what you've been doing has been even given to you as choices, you know, you could fall for anything. You know, because everything in our society was put there purposefully by people and with a reason. Yeah. So I think it behooves us to find out who put certain things in the plate, why they put that in the plate, 
and pool benefits. And if you don't know that, like the court said, you can't afford it. And next you know, what you're doing or what you're asking for is something that doesn't benefit you because you're not educated on what, what you're taking in and what you're receiving. For sure. Yeah, you know, what sticks out to me with that quote is the um, imperialism. You know, basically, um, the way I interpret that is, you know, basically doing what the white man is doing. Yeah. You know, like, what is the difference? You know, if we're not really teaching people what they need to know, the building blocks to create for themselves. And why are we making this change? It's not just to make a change, just to make it, but there's a purpose and there's a history behind making those changes. And people, if you go without knowing the history, you just go just to make a change and think that you go back to the same. It's just a different uh, um, different people on top. Mm -hmm. And that don't make any change. Exactly. That just keeps the status quo going. Yeah, so it's actually making change that creates making a change that actually changes the systems that have been in place for so long. Exactly. Yeah. Um, tell us tell us a little bit about your history, both of you guys. Um, how you came about being part of the cannabis industry? Well, definitely. Um, I'll start off. I came into the cannabis space roughly uh, three to four years ago, planning the 20, see, it was 2016 or the 2017 New York City Cannabis and it was at that meeting that I ran into a couple other people of color. Um, noteworthy is Jake Plowden, one of the co-founders of the Cannabis Cultural Association. Um, I also ran into Dana Bill, who is uh, pretty famous in New York and also on the West Coast for spearheading certain uh, grassroots movements involving plant and medical patients being able to receive, you know, medicine at a cost that's, you know, not taking them out of the budget or something they can afford. And um, at that at that event, I was in conversation with certain people about, you know, um, people of color and where they fit into the cannabis space presently. You know, and at that time, there wasn't really a lot of organizations geared towards talking to communities disenfranchised or most hardly affected or impacted by the war on drugs, black and brown communities. So, um, it was shortly after that um, that the uh, Cannabis Cultural Association founded, and um, me and the person who actually invited me, um, my cousin Corey, he um, was working with uh, New York Restorative Project and uh, Brooklyn Bridge Park, and he was the one who actually introduced me to most of the people at the meeting for the uh, Cannabis Parade. So, you know, I got in there, you know, talked with Jake, and they, you know, he said him and uh, two of his other friends, uh, Nelson Guerrero and Kamani Jefferson, were thinking of forming a nonprofit to um, educate black and brown communities and also provide education to those communities on how they can get involved in cannabis and help legally nationwide. So, um, probably a couple months after that meeting and after the parade that went down, the Cannabis Cultural Association formed. Um, me and my cousin were asked to become members and see what type of piece of value to add to the group. That sounds great. So, that's how I got started in this case. Um, shout out CCA. Yeah, shout out Culture. Hey, that's a fact, man. <laughs> um, so I got started, I guess, um, I feel like Cannabis chose me. Um, <laughs> she called me. And <laughs> this is Mary Day. <laughs> Pick a board job. Right. 
Um, so for me, it was it was my own personal health that led me to seeking for um, solutions that didn't involve being sedated and you know dealing with chronic pain, um, anxiety, and so that was my kind of you know outside of my teenage experiences. You know, as an adult, you know, returning to her um, with more knowledge and understanding and with a purpose. And so um, I would say, I guess a year ago, less than a year ago even, I decided to make that part of my practice. And I feel like it has uh, the potential and, you know, significantly for educating people on mental health and putting it into a context that feels more relatable um, and, uh, you know, combining it with the, the plant in which a lot of people are using to help, you know, relieve stress and so forth. So um, I wanted to pivot and make, make my practice bigger and more expansive in that way. And um, Jeremy actually told me about the study group. Okay. The night that we met and um, went to the study group and it's been, you know, going ever since. Okay. So have you guys ever been impacted negatively by the war on drugs or anybody that you know? have been impacted by the war on drugs, especially on cannabis? Um, as far as cannabis and the war on drugs, um, I've had plenty of friends um, get, you know, into kind of iffy situations, dealing with colleges and the plant or uh, falling out with family over the plant. And um, I feel like we all have as people of color, you know, um, whether it be something as far as getting caught with an ounce in New York, which since 1976, when they first did decline, was already, you know, you were, you were good under that amount. Cuomo thinks he's a hero because he, <laughs> he added he added some stuff to the decline, a law that already existed to the one. And, and that's my whole thing. Not, not, not to cut into who's getting affected, I really want to really dive into that. Um, because to me, it doesn't make sense. Like when you think about it, they're saying since 1976, you were allowed to be in possession of up to 28 grams of cannabis in New York City. And it'd be just a ticket. So, if they see it. If, if they see it, right? So, first of all, they, that's a whole other can of worms. <laughs> do they even have the right to, you know, we already exposed their stop and frisk practices or how they were initially mm -hmm. coming into contact with people of color to find whatever they found. Mm -hmm. You understand? We're not going to deny if you find something bad or somebody bad, but your reasoning for going up to that person was prejudice, yeah. racial, and, 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 and its inception of why you even went over it. You know, so to me, it's like, it's all about, it's, it's, it's who, who's educated to know. Like, if they're not taking the time to look and see the history of decrease, then to the average person, yeah, it's a big win. Because that's about two ounces. But I know people from New York, people of color, I'm pretty sure you know people of color who got locked up yeah. for way less than that. Yeah. You know, within the last 20 years. And there, were, there have been people who brought it up. Um, I want to say... I don't know what's name, I think it's Cassandra Frederick from oh, the yeah, Drug Policy Alive. Yeah. Shout out to her. I used yeah, to work for her. Out, oh, yeah, shout out to DPA. <laughs> yeah. Um, matter of fact, shout out all the big orgs. You know, I came across Majority of DPA. Um, 
Canada Cultural Association, Women's Room, I&Y, Canada Gather, Minority Cannabis, um, Minority Cannabis Business Association, Doc Presto Doctor, uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, um, Presto Doctor, you know, um, a lot of the orgs, you know, are really trying to get people educated. Cassandra Frederick um, specifically called out the Blasio for the disparity in numbers. Because, like I said, we're going to see six months down the line. Um, yes, there may be less arrests, but we're going to look at how many people of color are getting arrested compared to how many, you know, white people are getting arrested. And then, and then, and you, always, you, know, and then you got to look at when if people go to court or if people pay the, those tickets mm -hmm. when they get a ticket, because that's then you get a warrant mm -hmm. if you don't pay that ticket. So a lot of our young people, they're not really thinking about paying a ticket. Mm -hmm. So even if they get a just get a ticket, it can't turn something else. If they get a chance to pay the ticket, though, yeah. understand, since 1976, it was supposed to be a ticket. How many people do you know have gotten a ticket from me? No, no I've no. never this, met anybody. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> I, 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 I know it sounds crazy, but think about it. We are all people of color here. How many people do you know have got caught or have, you know, been in position of, of a tickable offense but never got no ticket and was just straight to jail? Yeah. I'm just saying. It didn't happen then when it was, they changed the one ounce to two ounce, but I still saw people with less than ounce still getting jailed. So why would it change that? That's my whole thing. And, like, and, and people don't even know that even having an open container mm. of alcohol is it's not a arrestable offense. It's supposed to be a ticket. Exactly. And they still arrest you for having an open container. But yeah, then you, talk, then you talk about the the three strikes policy too. That's since then been changed, but that's also a huge part of this and, and how that impacts folks as well. No, no, definitely. You know, so um, to me, I feel it's all about a game of who knows what. You know, because the numbers don't lie. People of color and 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 you know ghettos or whatever you want to call them have been getting arrested for being in possession of 28 grams for the last 20, 30 years. And perhaps don't have access financially to attorneys who can make the actual argument legally of why they should just be ticketed or, you know, whatever should happen. And then, you know, the effects, right? So you're talking about young people who this happens to them. If they're under the age of 18, they go to apply for college, they apply for for student, for student financial aid. Student loans. And it's on your records, you can't. So you end up disenfranchising a whole population of people who can't go to college, not because they don't want to, but because they physically can't afford it. And they can't, they're not, student financial aid isn't, isn't accessible exactly. to them. And now they not create a generational wealth because mm -hmm. now they have a barrier to create some type of generational wealth for their families mm -hmm. because you have a, a, a minor possession of cannabis. Um, but I want to um, ask um, Chanel, have you or anybody in your family have been negatively affected by the cannabis or the war on drugs? The war on drugs? Hell yes. Um, my father is in prison for drugs for like, you know, he was sentenced to like 60 years. Wow. For some stuff. Not, so, cannabis. not cannabis, but still, like it's, you know, the, um, the way that the system moves you through you know, and um, the way that it operates, you know, not saying that, you know, what he was doing was, was wrong, right, or whatever, but it's still, it's set up and put in a place where the objective is not rehabilitation, the objective is not helping you, the objective is not getting our citizens into this place that they can function well and, like, make a living for themselves. Mm -hmm. So we have to turn to alternative economies, Yeah. you know, 
and then we're penalized so heavily for just trying to eat. Mm-hmm. Trying to feed our family. Ourselves. Ourselves, yeah. So tell us about the New York State Study Group or New York Study New York Group? Cannabis study group. The New York Cannabis Study Group. So, so tell us about that. What What is that? Um, so the study group is, um, you know, like I said, I was invited to it. So it's something that's been in um, operation for uh, um, and, you know, what was happening was literally coming together to, you know, review bills, to talk through what was happening in terms of legislation and elected officials, you know, really just about helping people understand what's happening because, you know, our elected officials are going and doing jobs that they may not be working for us, mm-hmm. right? So um, being able to um, understand the landscape and really communicate that to other people, I think, has been um, a significant asset to set And, you know, it's just, it's, Within itself, it's catchy because, you know, there's something for everyone to learn about the plant. And so we come together, we meet twice a month, once, one or two times a month, and, um, you know, have our set agendas. We always welcome new folks to come in and, and observe and to, to share and ask questions. But we do, you know, like, they are working meetings. Okay. You know, like, we're really trying to make progress on things, um, you know, setting a collective agenda, um, making sure that, I mean, it's a mixed group. It's New Yorkers of all walks of life. We have lawyers, professors, um, folks who, you know, just do, um, you know, regular stuff. Like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a um, very mixed crowd, white, black, Latino, male, female, um, sexual orientation, it doesn't matter. We all come together. We're all about ending cannabis prohibition. We're all about making sure that New Yorkers know what's going on and um, working collaboratively. You had mentioned that you were invited to the group. Um, is, is this group only by invitation only? Uh, well, <laughs> seeing that there was like four or five members, <laughs> pretty much. Jeremy and I have helped to kind of, you know, get it going with uh, more social media um, outreach and sharing. But generally, you know someone who's in it or has gone to it, and you're invited. So it typically does kind of come across as like a personal invite. Mm-hmm. And is there a target membership that you guys are looking for to be a part of the group? I know you said that so far it's all walks of life, but is there anyone in particular that you're looking for, or generationally, anyone? Um. I don't think it's anybody specific we're looking for more. It's about uh, your field of expertise, how you feel it can apply to, you know, educating the public or moving the agenda of, you know, having a, like a bipartisan bill made by people. Um, the thing is, the study group has been in operation for more than a year, right? Um, but with schedules conflicting, I didn't get to actually, and I've known the members since its inception. But I just didn't get a chance to really sit down with them and actually, you know. So they've been having meetings, but April 4th was the first one I got to attend. But I know the other members personally. So it was just, they've been cooking up growing, you know, looking over the bills in New York as it went through each stage. Because, you know, we had the Senate proposal bill, we had the mm-hmm. proposal bill, then we had the recent murder. So the study group really had been watching the bills as they changed. You know, from one state to the next, or one proposal to the next, and 
we were looking at the language of what they took out, who's really representing the bills. Because if you look over the bills, there's a lot of things in there. And yeah, at the end of the day, the bill didn't pass, but everything in there is, is not, it's for a reason, it's for a purpose. You know, so. I heard that they took this bill and they passed it in Chicago. They used the same, um, the same uh, frame framework of the bill and they used it in Chicago. That's and that's not how it works, you know. Um, Writing a bill from scratch, I don't know if it was hard work. Yeah. You know, um, and the lawmakers, regardless of what people may think, don't know anything about the bills they're writing. They have to connect with industry professionals mm -hmm. to see what's supposed to be in bills and how it's supposed to really benefit everybody, you know, in the, in the you know, a set area, a set state. You know, so, um, yeah, man, um, as far as... The framework, you know, it was it was kind of it was kind of sad, you know, the bill not passing. But oh, I, I have faith that New York will get something done, you know, in the near future, hopefully. And I really feel it depends on how involved people get is how the bill will really speak to them. So that's that's my 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 next question is how do you get in the community involved to come out and 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 voice their opinion and and be their present and not being in the backseat. How is your group doing that? Well, how the study group, uh, you know, most for we're doing that is we hold, you know, events in different boroughs. Um, right now, it's starting out mostly in Brooklyn and Manhattan. But we do have members from other boroughs and, we're, you know, putting together other events in different areas so people could really see the message of it doesn't impact them, they can get involved, and they can make a change. Um, our whole thing is to let people know the work that can be done throughout the year, mm -hmm. not just election times, mm -hmm. as far as like expressing your interest, um, letting you know, your elected official know that what you say matters as far as if you're not really representing what me and the rest of my neighbors are representing, we don't necessarily need you. But, you know, it's a whole game that they play as, you know, placing the main importance of election years. Mm -hmm. So. In an ideal world, the New York State, New York State legislature legislates or uh, passes cannabis legalization and recreational uh, cannabis. What's the next step for the study group? Is it, do you guys, is there something additional that you would like to see uh, in terms of policy change or what's the next step? Well, there's, there will still be plenty of uh, need for the study group even after something passes because we need to get the word out, right? Like what that means in terms of individuals who are, you know, looking to be involved in terms of adult recreational use. What changes come down the pipeline in terms of the medical program? Um, you know, how does this impact families and, you know, communities, but then business owners, right? Those who want to get involved in the cannabis industry, knowing what the, um, what's being required of them to stay in compliance, right? So like from a technical support standpoint, I think the study group will still have relevance, um, in, you know, even after it's passed. Okay. What are the challenges that you see in the industry? Um, can you be more specific? Is it specific challenges or challenges in general? Challenges for you, for you, like oh, for you. Yeah, for, for this group. group. Yeah. Well, um, the challenges are just really having people understand that, um, you know, it's for them. You know, um, a lot of times when people first get introduced to a group, it's, it's not their first time dealing with an organization for whatever reason. 
Um, I think that's just the, the, the main thing is getting a, a level of comfort, people understanding what we're trying to do. Because a lot of people say things, and then you know how your organization moving forward might not match that. You know, so our whole thing, I think, the main challenge that we that we find ourselves in is really having people understand, you know, why we're choosing these steps. So that that's the main part. People don't necessarily like to learn new things they haven't been doing before, even though we may aspire to always want to do that. You know, um, uncomfortableness or learning things new makes people uncomfortable. If you're not used to doing anything, you know, big man, you know what I mean? He knows what he's talking about. You know, so. Um, that's like the main hurdle. Letting mm-hmm. people understand that, yeah, you know, it, it's it, it, it's a new system, but it's an old system. Mm-hmm. This is the same thing, you know, people, not people of color, you know, white, non white people. Yeah. You know, they do this as far as, you know, communicating with us officials, taking time to go up to all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they lobby. They go over there and they do what they have to do. And it's not just a certain time. You have to uh, be a consistent lobby. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and, that's why when you look at the bills, you can see who's been the consistent lobby or who's doing the consistent lobby, especially in New York. Yeah. You know, so that's how I look over the bills. So, you know, people are doing things, but we can see what's represented in the bill or who's doing what. So that's why I feel there's definitely a message to the people that we have to do more. Because there's not enough in, to me, in my opinion, in the last previous bills that include people of color. You know, nothing is really directly said. It's more considerations. We're going to have a consideration for a person who looks like you. I mean, these people think by expunging records, that's equity. They think that's equity. That's it. We did our job. We expunged a few records. What are you complaining about? You want to really talk equity? Just talk about it should be free grants for land. Yeah. You understand? Like, I, I, have, I have faith, you know, when I have faith, as, as, as long as the people get involved. Because the people don't get involved, cannabis won't move like any other industry. And, 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 and that's what I'm afraid that some white kid from Arkansas will become the Jameson of, of cannabis. And, and it shouldn't be like that. When, no. you, when you think about that, you know. But that that's where it's heading. It's already on that path. I'm you know, it, it, it's on that path right now. You know, because in the society we're in, uh, everything is you know um, entertainment. Yeah. So, if cannabis ain't really entertainment, you know, I'd be trying to get educated on it. You know, I know it's an uphill battle, but at the end of the day, um, I know it's the right fight. You know, it's the right thing to do. And, and we talk about it in all the episodes, but there's so many entryways, entry paths to the cannabis industry that don't have to be that don't have to be the, the dispensary or growing the, the plant itself. It's, it's so many ways that people can make money off of this, and I'm trying to push it. Everybody that I know, every time I speak to them is, listen, man, I'm on that cannabis industry tip. We need to get in it. Yeah, like, and, if, and the numbers, not to cut you, the numbers even show that ancillary businesses mm-hmm. make twice to three times the amount of businesses where they touch the plant. Certainly. Yeah. There's, um, years ago, I was actually organizing cannabis workers in New Jersey. So folks who were uh, actually growing the seed and then actually selling the seed when it was um, passed. So the, for the UFCW, the United Food and Commercial Workers, they represent workers in Seattle and, and Colorado, believe in California as well. And one of the things that one of the owners or one of the people who was aspiring to open up a uh, dispensary slash grow the seed here in New York State, he was talking about um, the, the people who make the 
the equipment that um, extracts the oils from the plant have become like billionaires overnight because they have a very, very specific, specific technology um, that was for, essentially used, initially used for essential oils and figured out how to extract it and overnight became, you know, the person, everyone uses their, yeah, everyone uses their specific um, um, equipment to do, to get this done. So I think that's pretty, pretty incredible too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel she definitely touched on some of the point. Because even if you look back into when they had the gold rush in the West Coast, you know, um, the people who made the most money in the gold rush um, were not the people who actually took the gold out of people to these tools, hats, helmets, belts, you know, like that. You know, so it's been shown in other industries that the tools that are used to help the industry thrive or even just operate or go through its day-to-day operations of those who are really going to you know, see a lot of profit. For sure, for sure. You know, Chanel, I know you mentioned um, now adding cannabis into your, into your work um, as a psychologist. Yes. And so can you talk a little bit about that? I know you mentioned it briefly, but just for folks who this may be the first thing they're hearing about that, yeah. um, or maybe they've done their own self-medicating, from your perspective as a, as a mental health professional, just how do you see that? Right, right. So I see it in so many ways. Um, one, from the standpoint of being a professional and knowing the type of training that I've gotten on cannabis, right? All propaganda-based. All reefer madness, you know, stuff. So, you know, realizing that there's a significant gap in terms of how the plant is viewed um, amongst practitioners. So, when someone as a patient goes in to talk with someone who's on a propaganda knowledge base and reefer madness knowledge base, then they're going to pathologize, and um, which basically means that, you know, there are times when, yes, there's an addiction and there's you know, dependence and all that, but then there are times when that's not the case. And um, providers need to be able to um, finesse the nuances of that in this climate where there is legalization, where there are medical programs, um, and I think that we're definitely not equipped for that. So from the standpoint of helping to educate other providers and knowing the, the um, landscape of things, like that's very important to me. From the standpoint of clients in my work, I of course do not provide the cannabis. <laughs> no smoking together or nothing like that. I was gonna, I was gonna hire you. Like, so when we get ready for that legally. <laughs> but um, because I think that there is, you know, a aspect of the plant that you know we experience and it can help people in working through certain challenges, right? For sure. Um, you know, but. Until that happens, I think there's, you know, we can uh, leverage what we are able to experience in terms of CBD and so forth. But being able to talk with folks and not um, basically shit on their experience, Mm -hmm. right? Like really validate where they're coming from, why they're using the plant, um, what it's helping them to do. So when I get new clients, I'm not just immediately going, oh, they must be abused. No, I'm like, okay, well, how are you using it? What does it seem to do for you? Um, What do you get out of it? how often and so forth, but really just asking questions, you know, versus making assumptions, Yeah, you know, like that's important. And for this, being on the other side of the couch or the chair or whatever, as a client, 
um, it's, it's intimidating, you know, and especially if you're a parent, you know, somebody's going to try to call CPS on you or whatever like that. Like, it's, there's a lot that happens and transpires in that room in which, you know, it's supposed to be a room of trust, right, the therapy room, um, one of uh, trust, validation, um, support, and so being able to help set that stage for people, help educate clients, caregivers, um, educate providers as well. Like I think there's a significant move um, in terms of just mental health practitioners across fields, you know, social work, um, folks working in schools, all of that. So how, how do you see the, because I have family that are in the mental health profession, mm -hmm. and they are not about that, that they say mm -hmm. that they should not be smoking, at all, they should not be doing anything, but I will prescribe some opioids to them, right, not cannabis. Right, so right. How, how do you feel about that? I think those folks have to be educated on um, plants, like just in general. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Like let's get a common language, a common yeah. understanding, so then we can really talk about it. Because if you come at it from that standpoint, herbal, herbal, no, no, herbal. no, yeah. Like, it's not going to be heard when you think about, you know, I think it has to be infused with history, you know, from an indigenous standpoint, what people are trying to accomplish. Um, it has to be infused with um, compassion. Um, we cannot just share, again, share people's experiences. Like, we have to, to be able to hold space for folks and what they're trying to do with their lives, what they're trying to accomplish. Um, one of the things that kind of buzzed my head right open was learning about cannabis. Um, in terms of the female plant producing the, the flower. Um, and I'm like, so you mean to tell me that this stressed female plant is going through so much to produce these flowers, these buds, this, you know, medicine, essentially, to help this stressed out female? So, I mean, once from one stressed out female to the next stressed out female, I appreciate her. Okay? Yeah, for sure. So, <laughs> To get birth on the those stress. Yeah, you know, like and, and to think about that from the standpoint as an American, what we're dealing with in this society, to think about it from a standpoint in terms of what's happening with the globalization and um, the continued colonization of the world, right? Like mm -hmm. it's a lot to take in, it's a lot of stress that gets built up. So how are folks able to deal with that when we're in environments constantly innovating us with excess information, excess, you know, in every way, um, we've got to have a way to balance ourselves. And so when you have providers who come at it from that standpoint who are understanding of like the shit that we're facing and not, um, I think this ties into, um, you know, white supremacy in that, you know, there is a lens that is used that's very reductionist. That everything has to be broken down into different components and, you know, looking at it from this angle or that angle, like, okay, we need to do the research. Yes, let's do the research. Let's understand the components, but then let's put them back together and be able to help people in a systematic way. Um, which even that, think about that now, is this hypocrisy, right? Like, they want to yeah. write certain stuff down, but not other things, you know? And then to go back to what you were saying about us having, like, that stress of, of just being humans, but... Us as people of color having that stress of being colonized and oppressed, mm -hmm. having that, PT, that PTSD. I don't know if you ever heard of Joy DeGray. She wrote a book called The, the 
culture man is slave syndrome. When I read that book, she spoke to me um, because a lot of our people are going through PTSD and we don't even know about it. Through genealogy, like it's been passed down to us. Um, we haven't healed yet from slavery for 500 years plus of slavery. Then after came Jane Crow, then after came, well, as we know, the, the mass incarceration movement. Um, and people don't see that. A lot of psychiatrists, a lot of people in the medical field don't see that we are going through PTSD and nobody cares. A lot of white kids got sick of, over the opioids epi epidemic. Johnson & Johnson got sued and these white people won. Can we sue Reagan and the yeah. and the U.S. government for bringing the crack epi epidemic to our communities? Can we do that? Probably yeah. not. The CCA has a lawsuit against Jeff Sessions and four five Congress right now about the Controlled Substance Act, unconstitutional, discriminatory against people of color, black and Latino. You can, but um, it's just. You know, you gotta be willing to put in the time. Because anything that people of color do, they don't want to drag it out. They're gonna try to come at people's character who are putting the suit against them, you know? So, listen, man, the, the sky's the limit. Really, anything is possible, but it's about are people gonna want to get into the fight? Because it's gonna be a fight. You understand? At, at the end of the day, people of color do not hold a majority percentage in any ruling body. Whether it be Fortune 500 companies, whether it be House Representatives, Senate, politics in general in the United States, or globally, you understand? So um, it really has to be, you know, us as a people got to get educated, got to mobilize. We have to know what we want, why we want it, how we're going to go about getting it. Because with all the divisions, everybody's, you know, doing whatever, you know, divide and conquer. Yeah. Because for hundreds of years, the United States government has moved in unison as far as why they pass bills, who those bills benefit, and will their power structure be impacted. And they're thinking ahead 50 years, 100 years when they make a plan. Well, there's a luxury of time, too, yeah. to do that. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of what we're talking about today, it's, you know, there's legislation that needs to be passed, but a lot of it's also culture shift. So mm -hmm. how do we make it so that way we're talking about cannabis in a way that's not taboo? Mm -hmm. So people feel comfortable to talk to their, their mental health professional and say, hey, listen, I'm taking this plant, this is the reason why. Is that from a place of shame or I can't say this because I'm going to. You're going to call authorities on me because you're not going to And if I have a child, you're going to see it. Yes, you please ask Yeah, DCF, or whatever. And they have to put something in the new bill in the morning to kind of combat that, but you know, we're going to see what happens in the next session. But I think, you know, along those lines, you know, I do work around birth workers. Like, I'm a birth worker as well. And so one of the larger things that we've seen is, you know, in Colorado, women who decide, or pregnant people who decide to use the, the, the plant for morning sickness, to use the plant instead of an epidural, and, you know, them... It's a terrible. I can't imagine what yeah. people say when I was telling people to do that. Yeah, and so they... are not educated, they're like... And it's on two different fronts, right? So you have, like, wealthier white women who use the plant, who have the ability to have access to providers, to midwives, who would never, ever send them through, like, mm -hmm. getting full blood workups to do a, a 
normal, a routine blood exam to see if they have any drugs in their system. Versus someone who's in the system, someone who is going to end up getting WIC, who is on food stamps, who are on Medicaid, who just by virtue of you accessing those government benefits, you're required to actually get a full medical work, like the, the blood work to see if you're on any drugs. And if you are, then you have to meet with certain. And you're constantly being asked if you're doing drugs. Mm -hmm. And along that same line, where if you're doing cannabis, so it's, you know, if I'm using it because I have wicked um, back pains or I'm just really not well, like and, you know, and I don't have the money to, to be able to pay for some of this medication, and I can't do, I, I can't with access to cannabis, how can I help myself with that? That, like, just long-term effects of folks who end up taking the epidural, their bodies, and et cetera, what happens to their, to their child. Mm -hmm. People don't think that, but because the medical establishment is very, very, you know, patriarchal, very... They think they jump. They've done with, exactly, then certain, certain people can get certain... So, and then, then, the and, and then to, to add to that, it's like, how can I talk to my parents or to my family mm -hmm. afterwards that I'm using that without them viewing me as right. a, a marijuana or like the Latinos, if you want to call yeah. it. No, I just want to say, um, you know, from the standpoint of even going back to the mental health professionals piece or anyone else, I think we have to look at healing more comprehensively, mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, everybody doesn't need to be in therapy. Right? Like, that's not a requirement, but there are a lot of people who benefit from it, right? But even then, I'm tracking back to, like, why do we have such a need for therapy? That's because we're not being taught, like, what are thoughts? What are feelings? How to deal with them? How to communicate with other people about your feelings? How to deal with other people's feelings? So, like, then, yes, we need therapy um, to kind of help remediate and process and work through a lot of things. Um, but if we look at healing from a holistic standpoint, like, there... As a mental health professional, I need to know how people are using essential oils. You know, yeah. as a mental health professional, I need to have some understanding of nutritional remedies and other integrative practices, as they're called, and cannabis being one of those. You know, like so, if we are better educated on this front, we can help other people understand what their options are, and they just not reject those options when they do come to us. You know. Yeah. Um. So you know, that's a, a just ask questions, subject. like you mm -hmm. said. And how do your family feel about you working in the cannabis industry? Um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a mixed bag, but listen, we all know uh, our parents from older generation came up very influenced by propaganda, with madness. So they have one, they got one education on the planet. I got a little bit of that same education coming up, but then, you know, being in the space, got the real education. So, yeah, they look at it as taboo until they have a conversation with mm -hmm. And then they see, you know, I'm not doing something going to go get high, it's not a sex party, I'm doing <laughs> um, discussions, we're having uh, positive ways to move forward in the community to affect change, you know, so at first, they all, they hear cannabis, anything, because the a study will be. You know, so I don't want to get high. It's the first thing they say. If you hear cannabis, they assume high. You know, so everybody looks at it a funny way, unless they are they have prior knowledge of the plant. But for the most part, it's taboo until they sit down and talk. Or they need it themselves. Yeah, you know, uh, that, that, that's another thing too. So, um, actually, that's probably one of the um, 
my best feelings about being in the cannabis space is that I've actually been able to get, you know, real medicine for family members who were ailing mm-hmm. with, you know, serious stage four illnesses. You know, I had my uncle came home from Ghana, had a prostate issue, you know, I was able to get her some tinctures, send him back down with some tinctures. Um, you know, some T T C C B one to one ratio yep. tinctures, you know. And um that's like one of the best films, you know, if I could just keep that going for other people, uh, have them being able to help their family have access, you know, to non uh, addiction building type remedies, you know, things more natural. And um, that's like the real big thing, you know, I was able to help my family or, you know, um, but like I said, it's taboo until, like uh, she said, they need it or they sit down and have a conversation with can I just say that, like this, and this is something that I think personally like infuriates me just about like colonialism. These are all remedies that our ancestors have used for, oh my goodness, for millennia. Thank and you. Then we were persecuted. We were told that it was wrong. Mm-hmm. Then they so we worshipped the devil. So exactly. So they took it away from us, reprogrammed <laughs> us, and then they repackaged it and resold it to mm-hmm. us. So that I think you know, like I said, I'm a birth worker, and some of the work that I do it's around. You know uh, how do you heal your body after, before and after birth? And some of the things that I'm learning, or I want to go to a workshop, and it's like, oh, learn about these ancient indigenous, uh, you know, body body work. Um, it's going to cost you two thousand dollars, and Becky with the good of it is going to teach you mm-hmm. from Kansas about because she went to Guatemala for a year. She learned from my boss. Said, no, shame on you. Like I don't want to teach you to teach me, but exactly. So the fact that like. You know, your family is from South America. Likely, you know, some ancestors used the used the plant, but were told that the plant was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I know they now go from the United States, bring this plant back down, and and have access to something that, and the time that's wasted, but it's also like it's erasing our our heritage, like our, our history. Like we weren't doing that already. It was right them teaching the savages how to teach <laughs> It's like, oh, actually, the savages actually know what they're doing, but let's repackage it. But how did you so, watch the savages know what they were doing? The come down, break back to them generations. But then again, it's like, it's not even the point, it's just. They saw an opportunity to keep the oppression going because. They were using cannabis themselves. Like, cannabis has been on human consumption since the beginning of time. It's not just us or the indigenous people. Everybody was doing cannabis. Um, it started from China. started in China, but it trickled down. It trickled down. All indigenous. I wanted to touch on that indigenous part. Because when you talk about indigenous, I don't want to sound taboo anything. I've never seen a white indigenous. starting a business in the cannabis industry or just 
starting to approach a cannabis industry, whether they use the plant or not. What would you advice would either one of you do? Folks. Um, I started off with that, uh, that you know, uh, fish on it. Definitely get educated. Um, get educated into what field you want to enter in. Uh, find out what the uh, regulations are in your state. Um, if nothing's really going on in your state, check your neighbor in state. And um, really just education. You know, find out you know what you want to do, who you're trying to reach, what your purpose is. You, you know, uh, if you want to touch the plant or not. And um, education, and education, and how you want to affect the people. Um, to that point, I would say, you know, think about what you already do well, what your interests are already, and see how that can be done in this space. Like, that was one of the best things that I've heard, and I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, it's not a whole complete new thing. You know, there are people who are transitioning from you know, previous careers and starting something new, but um, generally whatever it is that you have done, you can do within cannabis. So I think, um, you know, echoing the education. Just to add on that, because cannabis jobs do cover all 12 sectors of business. So most likely whatever you're doing now, legitimately, you're doing the cannabis piece. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Um, and, you know, going to events, hitting up YouTube, uh, getting an idea of not just how you want to serve, but what you want to set up for future yeah. generations. Because I believe this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity, you know, uh, opportunity that we can get some reparations on our own terms. You know, um, not, again, like Jeremy said, it's not going to be easy, but you know, it is possible. I believe to um, to stake a claim in this space. And it's and it's all about going out there and and learning, like Jeremy said. It's just just open your eyes and and be open minded. Don't don't just stick to the taboo or the stigma, the myth that you have heard for X amount of years. What fifty years almost? We have heard since the fifties, thirties. We have heard that this that this plant is is a devil. Um, so just us opening our minds and seeing that there's other ways for us to create generational wealth, like Chanel said, on our own terms. We cannot let this industry, like I always say, almost in every podcast I say this, but it needs to be said, is that the industry is only going to legalize once. If you miss the ship, that's it. Like, you, you, it's not coming back from it. This is the last industry in the United States to be legalized. The last one. So you got to get on it. And we got to get on it um, quickly. So if anybody wants to go to the next event that the New York Cannabis Study Group is doing, how can they um, get the information? And how can they contact you if they have any questions? Um, definitely. Um, if they want to reach out to the Cannabis Study Group, we can be reached at uh, csg.brooklyn at gmail. That's the email. And um, you can reach me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, the Facebook handle is my full name, Jeremy Woolworth, one word. Um, Instagram is at the real JQuest, that's T H E R E A L J Q W E S S. 
And Twitter is QWDSS. And Dr. Chanel also has some social media tags that she can reach with as well. Yep, I'm on Instagram at Dr. Chanel, D R S H E N E L L. And I also have a, a Facebook group called Adulting Resiliently with Dr. Chanel. So, just for fun, we always ask these questions as well. What age were you when you first smoked, and how was the experience? I don't know, just middle school? <laughs> um, so, like, Early bird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't really remember the experience, but I know I did it. Yeah. <laughs> um, my first time smoking was seventh grade. I was about either twelve or thirteen, and smoking some skunk. I was in New Jersey at the time, and I was super high. Going home, got home. You know, it's after school. We had to be home like five thirty. Got home like eight o'clock. I'm so high, I told my mom. Did she beat your ass? She definitely didn't. She didn't know I was high. I was just coming with me. She said so. She comes to the slide, but I was super high, and I still remember what the hell I said. Have you ever feel the need to kill somebody when you're high? Uh, no. We just watched Reaper Badness, and so. People get it's insanity and they want to kill everybody. Somebody put it 
That's that's interesting. Why is it? Yeah. Well, we just can't throw it out. Yeah. Well, recently, you know, I came across we always heard Ali talk about the Jewish community and himself being Jew. And um, I've just been hearing interesting things about visits he took to certain few places, you know, some of his statements directed directly towards the black people who were enslaved in America at the time. So I just want some clarifications on that. Um, I don't know, the, the, the narrative pushed towards him, like anybody from the mainstream media or any of the live governments put the most evil person, I got to see, got told by person in the first place. I feel you on that. Because a lot of our, you know, black leaders, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, all were FBI's most born in time. Yeah, but they didn't, they didn't bluntly killed millions of people. Like, head lived there. Yes, if you look into the numbers, how many people actually died here? Like, I got to deal with numbers and facts. You know, um, I don't know, the numbers of facts don't necessarily support a lot of the, the things that were being, we're pushed, were being pushed about Hitler, you know. What he said about blacks in America was that they were the British Jews. What he said. So I don't know, I want to find out about what was going on. I don't say I agree with anything he did or supposedly did. I guess I'm going to put that disclaimer out there. Anything that he was said to have done against a certain group, I don't condone that. But he did have very interesting things publicly to say about mm -hmm. people of color. You want to get to the bottom of it. I want to get to the bottom I feel you that. I would love to talk to him too, but he got to be chained somewhere. Because I don't <laughs> want to. If it was just a regular conversation, fuck no, but I would talk to him. But we said, who would I want to smoke with? And that true serum would help me get to the bottom of what the fuck we're going with. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So think about smoking this one, you're going to be high, you're going to. Yeah. The fuck He's not trying to kill anyone. He's not He's not trying to kill anyone. He's not trying to kill anyone. He's not trying to kill anyone. He's not I was thinking about the Wayans family. Oh, yes. You know? The old town of them? I smoke the old town of them. Oh, it's 12 and 13? No, I don't smoke that. Oh, okay. That's one that's not in Canada. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. It's a lot of them. It's a lot of them. Like, when you think about the when you think about more Families, mm -hmm. families, with different last names. But they're all, they're just they're all 
Walmart, the Walton family. Like, Johnson and Johnson. Entire families. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, like, you guys, you guys should be too big. The Roth family. It's all about family you think about it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. So, um, thank you both for your time. and um, Thank you, guys. We appreciate you. you. Yeah. yeah. Creating the space for people to learn. We need this more, more often. Yeah. yeah. Education is key. Yeah. And so if we can just uh, reiterate for our listeners once again, just how they can get in contact or if they want to go to the study group, um, how they can approach you guys or get in contact with you all? No, definitely. Um, the study group can be reached via email at cdsg.brooklyn.gmail.com or uh, most likely Instagram at the real JQuest, one word, T-H-E-R-E-A-L-J-Q-W-E-S-S. And uh, Dr. Chanel has her social media as well, Instagram. Dr. Chanel, so at D-R-S-H-E-N-E-L-L. And like you said, we'll, you know, we reply to the emails of people RSVPing for meetings, which are usually twice a month, um, at csg.brooklyn at gmail. Awesome. Thank that you sounds well. great. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. And thank you for our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Blue Dream Radio. We'll see you soon. As always, I'm your host, Freedom. And L.E.G. And we out, people. Peace. Your medication makes me high. Just be patient. I'm like a patient trying to find levitation. Run your fingers down my spine. Elevation. Your medication makes me high. I'm Nice to meet you. Headed to Solana Reach, obsessed with your features.